Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijar Nathan, and with us today is Logan Provoznik. Uh He's acting as co-host. Welcome, Logan. Good morning, DJ. Welcome, welcome. And our featured guest, Liam Barry. He is an internationally recognized speaker, champion for girls' education, author of the book Decoding Feminism for Men. Um, he studied economics and political science at Columbia University in New York. Liam Barry is a proud feminist and with almost a decade of experience in educational advocacy and project management. So welcome, Aleem. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank I'm you. excited Thank to you. be here with you guys. Yeah, yeah. So why don't we start uh, by talking a little bit about the book, uh, Decoding uh-huh. Feminism for Men. Tell us like how it came to be written and uh, what are the themes of the book or what are the ideas of the book? Well, uh, first of all, I'm glad to be here. Um, so the book Decoding Feminism for Men, as you, it's centered around feminism and men. I guess that would be uh, yeah. apparent. And and these days, feminism, you know, it's oftentimes expressed or couched in, in a way that is uh, sort of against men or against the very existence of men. So what this book tries to do, in a sense, building on the extraordinary work of some uh, feminists in the in the past, or especially Kamala Paler, is making sure that men understand their role in feminism. That is not just about us versus them. It's about coexisting and making sure that we are working together, not only in terms of building society, but in terms of building one another. So, family, the themes of this book basically is touching on certain key aspects where men and women could work together and also but but also literally um, trying to help men understand uh, the circumstances that surround this this misconception that men uh, uh, feminism is it's against men and trying to clear that misconception bring men in the conversation and stress their importance in engaging in that conversation and it's not only about empowering women it's only about women's rights but also about um, relieving men from certain infrastructure that literally causes us a lot of troubles and so we talked about in this book i talked about patriarchy um, i talked about the social structure where uh, that the sort of structure where men and women are really finding it difficult to exist on their own and how it is important not only for men to recognize that structure, but for men to literally be part of it with a positive mindset, in a sense. So feminism, it's about empowering um, women, but it's also a necessary tool for men to grow and achieve their full potential. Um, yeah, so that's the essence, that, that the basic of the book, Decoding Feminism for Men. It's basically explaining feminism for men in a way that is not against them, in yeah. a way that shows feminism is the actual platform, not only to empower women, but also to um, advance men's rights as well. Yeah, yeah. let's talk a little bit about patriarchy and uh, mm-hmm. kind of deconstructing what that means and right. how that affects men um, and how, you know, kind of like, you know, people think like, oh, patriarchy must mean that men are therefore, you know, advantaged by that, but actually it's not Uh the case. So why don't we talk a little bit about that and how men are actually, you know, kind of, um, you know, they're kind of destroyed a little bit by patriarchy, you know, they're kind of toxic masculinity and all this kind of thing, yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I, I definitely talked about that, all of toxic masculine and everything. But patriarchy, it's not as is widely understood today. And that is yeah. when people say patriarchy today, men automatically say that, you know, um, men are dominating women and hence that you know women are subjected to the wrath of men that is not actually the case patriarchy in a sense it's a, a society that is dominated by men that is so that is true but by men who are only concerned about their own interests in a sense surely we can look at the structure of society and say um in on one in on one hand, that is patriarchy because it is dominated by men in terms of politics, in terms of uh, the social structures. At the same time, we can look at society and say, but women are also striving, women are also coming to terms with their own um, political right, with their own independence in society and all of that. So patriarchy, it is a thing that affects women, surely, if you look at the structure of society. But it is also a thing that affects men. And this is where the concept of toxic masculinity comes in, that surely patriarchy, prescribe, uh, surely patriarchy prescribes uh, certain rules that affect women, but also prescribes certain rules that affect men, in a sense that the pressure to live up to that so-called masculinity that men carry that we have to be since we're built in a certain way we have to conduct ourselves in a certain way we have to post portray a masculine trait in a sense if any men who fall short of those elements any men who fall short of the characteristics of what a man should be definitely faces the consequences of patriarchy and so these days we have you know people who identify men who identify themselves as gay or men who identify themselves with certain feminine traits in a sense, you know, who express, men who express his emotion, men who are less inclined to act in a certain macho way, definitely suffer the consequences or suffer a certain rejection from society in a sense. And that, since they fall short of the way men should be, they, you know, they're, they're definitely, um, as I would put it, uh, or as I would put it in the book, excluded uh, from the worlds of men in, in, in a sense. So what patriarchy does is not only exclude men, uh, women from society, does not only go against the interest of women in society, but also punishes men who fall short of what a man should be and that is where the toxic masculinity comes in which is the violent aggressive predisposition towards uh women yeah yeah and i think one key element there was about emotions and how you know in the traditional uh perspectives on patriarchy it's like men are not allowed to have emotions you know they're not yeah they're not like they're not allowed to process themselves process uh -huh. their emotions process their experience as well and that's something that's very difficult because that's just not human being that's not what we are as human beings like that's uh -huh. a contrary to the human uh condition and Absolutely. uh and yeah and definitely like um i would say that some people seem to think that um what we're establishing is a is a matriarchy rather, which is not uh -huh. the case either. I mean, it's not like uh -huh. it's not like the rule of women. It's not like the uh -huh. rule of emotions. Like you know, we ought to be like you know, kind of like overcome by emotion, but rather a balancing act. Um, and talking a little bit about that balancing act, talking a little bit about how um, when we have a a, a real balance, uh, mm -hmm. we have a healthy society. You know. 
Yeah. Absolutely. And and as as you mentioned, it um it's a social construct because we are not both men and women are not built in a sense we are built to have that balancing force and that one of the balance for having emotions and because society in a certain way of how a man should be devoid of emotion or devoid of expressing themselves you know in a sense that goes a biological nature in and in nutshell it affects us because since it goes against our biological nature it is affecting us inside so what feminism does is saying let's recognize this defect of our society okay let's make sure that let's let's clear things out women are suffering for sure but you guys are also suffering internally if you, if you look mm. at things from a, from a from a bigger perspective so feminism it is that tool it is that pathway that provides men the clear path to not only ensuring that they are healthy internally but also making sure that you know they have they have a clear mentality they have a positive mentality in coexisting with women uh, in society so it's it's about you know people say feminism it's also it's going against the biological nature of how a man uh, um uh, how man and woman should be in society i argue that that's actually not the case that patriarchy is going against actually the, the biological uh, nature of men and, and women and it's not about you know bringing about matriarchy or nothing it's about creating a balanced society in a sense mm. where both men and women are regarded as independent uh, agents on their own and they, yeah. they and they can coexist together to create a better society that makes me think of one of the other common objections i hear to mm. feminism and, and the idea of um you know because the core of it is supposedly the equality of the sexes and many people right. think about equality as being problematic because they're like well men and women right. are simply built differently so they're right. like you know like um how can they be equal if they're different um right but i know this is a problematic perspective as well because right. so, gender is a social construct but at the mm -hmm. same time, you know, we understand that the biologies of each gender function differently, but that's right. something different. I think the sex of the gender, sex and gender right. are different things, and that's something that's underappreciated. So you talk a little uh, bit about that, sex and gender, and how... Um, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, that is, all, that is also something I talked about in the book, that it, it is a social construct, and I believe sex and gender to be a social construct. And when we talk about equality, as, uh, as you alluded to, it's not saying that men and women are biologically on the same level in a sense I, yeah. feel, I don't feel like you know we all recognize our differences uh but it's also it's recognizing that what we're different we complement each other in a certain way okay and that one one entity should not take advantage of that difference yeah. so in, in in a patriarchal society what we see is that men are taking advantage of that which makes them different in a sense mm. and women are saying wait a minute we are supposed to complement each other if you're taking advantage of that difference if you're taking advantage of that balance then that literally that leaves us nowhere in a sense so equality of sex is saying that we should be equal not in terms of our biological orientation but in terms of the construct of society that we should be at the same level in a sense we should be free independent thinking agent it's like um it, I, I like to see it this way i don't know if you've read plato's republic where he's talking about you know the 
three functioning element of a virtuous person, saying that, you know, wisdom, temperance, and, and justice. He's saying that while one, the, the wisdom, which is re, uh, regarded as reason, literally should trump and, and be at the top of, of those three elements that constitutes, that constitutes a virtuous person, each of those elements, each of those three elements has its function, each of those that is relevant for a person to be virtuous. So you cannot take that, you cannot take one out. Once you take one out, you're done. A person is unable to be virtuous. So I look at it similarly with, with, with the balance of society with, in terms of the equality of sexes. Each one has difference. Each one has that which makes it, that, that, that which makes us unique. Once we try to take advantage of our difference, once we try to say, okay, my difference is more important than yours, then automatically we are shattering the, the the balance the equilibrium of society and that leaves us at a very terrible place which i think that's where we are right now yeah yeah and also i would say that um in regards to what you're saying it's like in a body we have to have a, the the different organs work together to absolutely uh yeah exactly as you're saying they complement each other they kind of that, and within the body society, we have different elements that are working, operating in different aspects, and we wouldn't Absolutely. value one organ over the other, but we'd understand how they function within this larger society. Yeah. Absolutely. And that is a basic fight of, uh, I would say, the second wave feminism, which is more important. Like, let's recognize that, hey, we're not fighting, we're not going against the evolution of family, we're not going, yeah. you know, against, you know, that we're not fighting necessarily difference between sex and gender. But what we're saying that, you know, sex is sex and gender is gender. Sex is the biological, it's our biological differences. It's, we, we are innately born with that. But gender, in a sense, is a social construct in anyone anyone can choose their gender in a sense mm. so any in this life let's not let gender define our independent role let's not let gender define who we are in a society let's just let that be the subject of the individual yeah and also i would say that these truths are very empowering and we talk mm. about uh, empowerment and empowering truth to power, you know, mm. transforming truth into a kind of a fuel for power. You know, mm -hmm. we, we understand that we can kind of liberate. It kind of has to do with liberation. But also, I would say that, um, you know, one thing that has to do with is Marxism. And I want to bring up Marxism as like an idea, a socioeconomic freedom as well, mm -hmm. as socioeconomic freedom as well, and kind of its connections to feminism. What are your opinions on how Marxism sits with feminism? Marx and feminism, well, I, I, I would just say I believe in, um, you know, this concept of uh, dialectical mat uh, materialism, you know, as you know, it, it, it's one of the fundamental pillars of Marxism. Uh, and that is, you know, dialectics in the sense that change arises or progress arises in society between, uh, as a result of a struggle between two contradictions. And in terms of Hegel, these contradictions meant uh, uh, ideas, but for mass, these contradictions meant um, two opposing forces fighting for a material, for the control of uh, material resources. And along those lines stems that we have come to perceive women as sort of properties in a sense. And, and and that under capitalism, um, women are sort of the backbone for uh, the progress we've seen in society. At the same time, they are in, they are incredibly left behind, and so 
Marx, in a sense, you know, would put forward this notion that, you know, once you break down the society, once we go through uh, socialism, eventually communism, um, women would have their own rightful role. But even Marx himself, if we look, if we dig deeper into his ideology, women have specific role in a communist society, in a sense. So just as men are not, um, are not free to exceed certain limit or exceed their limit or their god-given limit mm. their natural limit within a communist society women can also cannot cannot exceed those limits uh within a comic society so um i do not necessarily subscribe to the max um yeah to max philosophy of feminism because in a sense if you if we dig deeper it's sort of restrict women's potential to, 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 to strive, you know, it restrict their uh, tendency to um, achieve progress in society. So I, I tend to reject that more, I'm more of a, a liberalist, which means that you give, you let women be, you give them their freedom and see what they can do. Hell yeah, mm. we, they can achieve a lot, lot more better. You know, mm. I, be, I believe that. So to subscribe to Marx and philosophy, you, you have to, one has to understand the conditions surrounding Max sticks on, on feminism. Those conditions have to be met for feminism to exist. So it's basically, if you have to abolish uh, the concept of property, you have to abolish classes. And by doing so, you're basically putting women in their rightful place. Yeah. And also, I would say and that. Which is basically uh, yeah. On the men. Yeah. I would say that also, I would say that. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit about how, um, you know, putting women as a CEO uh, mm -hmm. is not necessarily the solution. Like, no, it's like having having the achievement of mm -hmm. women as CEO, women as leaders is not necessarily mm -hmm. the objective. It's a means to an end, but it should be mm -hmm. a means to an end towards creating more fair and just society for women on women workers. Mm -hmm. In other mm -hmm. words, like the women on the lowest level or women on the mm -hmm. regular level, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like are are experiencing treatment that is fair and egalitarian and if we have like women as ceos that are perpetuating patriarchy mm -hmm. perpetuating patriarchy then that mm -hmm. doesn't solve the problem would you say no absolutely i also believe that yeah, just as um having women as a ceo in, in a capitalist society as opposed to Marxist society where women yeah. wouldn't have that opportunity to be ceo in the first place I don't think that's necessarily the one solution to equality. We have to have the conditions that liberate women and that transcend uh, having women in the position of power. These days, I feel like we're so obsessed of having women in the position of power and we see this as a, a symbolic gesture to equality. And I mean, of course, we have a female vice president, which is, you know, you know, a, a, a positive step towards the right direction. And we're so obsessed with that. I don't think we should lose sight of the bigger picture. Though. And the side of the bigger picture is that creating the necessary conditions for women to, to, to strive and achieve their potential, regardless, okay, regardless of their status or position in society. So we talked about, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about uh, discrimination of women in society. You know, we mm -hmm. talk a lot, talk a lot about sexual harassment in society. Talk a lot, a lot about women in uh, rape of women in 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 work in, in workspaces. These are questions we have to grapple with because these are 
questions that leads to the condition that create a safe environment for women to strive and reach their full potential in the workspaces. We can't just be obsessed about having women as CEO. That's that's just symbol. That's just symbolic to me. That's mm. just like symbolism mm. to me. If we can have a woman CEO, but if she is working with certain conditions that oppresses women, that makes that. In fact, she's patriarch. She's literally enforcing the patriarchal uh, society we're living. A woman as a CEO can enforce that patriarchal, the, the patriarchal conditions. So we need to create, we need to focus on creating the condition, the spaces, the safe spaces for women to strive. And that transcends beyond just having women as a CEO. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And that, that means talking about equal pay, for sure. You know, create... Um, creating a space that is free of uh, discrimin- uh, discrimination, that is free of sexual harassment, okay? And, and, and basically that rejects this notion that women are inferior to men. Mm. And I would say also in regards to lessons we've learned in how to, how do we, how do we like advance this conversation with them? It seems like the conversation seems to have stalled, especially in the mm-hmm. 2016 election. We had like, right. you know, but then in, in the most recent election, you know, we had, you know, um, Biden wasn't, you know, kind of stalled by the fact that his vice president was mm-hmm. a woman and uh, a woman mm-hmm. of color. But at the same time, I just feel like the, the Hillary Clinton, the lessons we learned from Hillary Clinton's uh, uh, mm-hmm. presidential presidential run was very valuable. How she was put under much more scrutiny than mm-hmm. perhaps than Trump was. You know, absolutely. Yeah, you know, and this is and this is something that? I talked about it. That I talked about in my book. Uh, I think chapter seven, which is called uh, "The Sexist Glass Ceiling," uh, American Sexist Glass Ceiling. Yeah. I think maybe as an immigrant into this country. Uh, my status as an immigrant allows me to have uh, the chance of having a bigger perspective, if you will. And I was here in the 2016 election. In fact, I participated in, in so many of these campaigns, traveled around the country, um, and, and I campaigned for her and everything. And to see her lost, you know, that night, I was literally not sobbing, but I was, I see tears dropping down my you know, cheek and I couldn't make sense of those tears at, yeah, at that moment. And and for me, yes, Hillary was not a perfect candidate for sure. And she has been in the political space for almost 30 years now. And America, you know, has that. One might say that, you know, America has a taste for freshes, if you will, that the longer you stay in public, as in the public arena, um, you know, the more like you you tarnish your chances of leading this country. And Hillary has, has been, you know, in public space for almost, uh, for more than three decades now. And uh, she has exposed herself to certain, I would say, ideologies and, and, and certain criticism in a sense that literally made it difficult for her to pull, for her to win that, uh, that uh, 2016 election. And of course, you can also attribute that her loss to, um, to the media polarization in this country. And like I said, there's so many ways to explain her loss. You know, one might say the electoral college. But then again, these these are all elements, are all ideas that I took on. Because I was like, wait a minute, guys, I'm not naive. These are, these are all, you know, cases you can make against her loss. But for me, the fundamental reason why she lost was because of that hidden sexism. You know, mm. and when I when I when I mean hidden sexism, it's not like Americans are literally conscious of that. You know, you go outside on you go out, you go on the street and ask any American, pick any guy, are you sexist? 
literally you'll be shocked be like hell no i'm not sexist i believe every woman, a woman's right i believe they should have you know equal say in society but internally when it comes to important questions when it comes to who leads our nation when it comes to to, to, to the question of who should be our leader we reserve certain notions about women that literally paint american men as sexist and that's i literally take this idea in, in a book. It's not like they're aware of it. These are ideas that is ingrained in our culture, in our tradition, you know, and, and I, touch up, I touch on that a little bit about how the American culture, it's somehow, you know, carrying that hidden notion of sexism that we ingrained in, in our boys from a little on. And this tradition that we hold so dear, yet they carry in them within themselves sexist ideologies, sexist notions. And if, and and because these sexist ideas are hidden, American men are not aware of that. And so when we go into the ballot box, when we see women campaign, especially women uh, like uh, a woman like Hillary, the first thing that comes to mind, oh, well, you know, well, she's a woman, she has this, she has that, you know, because if Hillary had lost to a more qualified man, that would have made more sense because, you know, you're fighting, with, with, you're fighting the battle of ideas. But Hillary lost against a man who is an explicit sexist. Mm. You know, there is no way you could be safe. If sexism ever yeah. had a face, it would be Donald yeah. Trump, like literally. Yeah. And you lo and she lost to him. I don't mm. think there is any, any clear, any more visible evidence of sexism in America than in the 2016 election. And yeah, then, definitely. some people might say I'm naive. Some people might say that I'm limiting my um. My, my, the root of my rationale, but I, I don't know. I don't think so. These are all excuses we give. We try to complicate things when, in fact, it's just easy and simple, and it's right there in our faces. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think people feel threatened by a very successful and uh, and the way her demeanor was, the way Hillary Clinton's demeanor is, is that she's very like assertive and very Absolutely. aggressive. You know, like almost aggressive in the fact mm -hmm. that. You know, she knows exactly what she's saying, and people, mm -hmm. men feel threatened by that. Even women feel Absolutely. a little threatened by that because Absolutely. they feel like that is that what I should be? You know, is that how women should be? You know, they feel Absolutely. a little threatened and by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I, and I and I remember that. Absolutely. When she's you know she acts certain way, she's aggressive. She acts certain way. Oh, she's acting professorial. She acting way, yeah. oh, she's acting like, like like a bully. I remember once I don't know comment where she calls Trump's support a kind of a basket of deplorables yeah. and she was wow she literally taken down by conservative media how yeah. dare she call Trump but Trump's support a basket of deplorables but I'm like okay if political in, in the political in everything is fair you could go you, you could sling mud on each other but Trump can call Mexican rapist, some can degrade immigrant, can yeah. call African country a shithole country. Oh yeah, that's nationalism. So yeah. Trump can degrade liberal supporters, can call them whatever they want, nasty, ugly. I will punch, I want to punch them in the face. That yeah. is acceptable to 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 the conservative mind, and yet the basket of the deplorable. Oh hell no, because it's ordered by a woman in a sense. So all of this thing when she cries, oh hell wow. You know, that's her feminist side. She's not capable. How how are you gonna have a woman who cries, you know, be the leader of the free world, you know, carries the code of our nukes and anything. So those double standards still exist in our society today and it's apparent in every apparatus in, in, in American society, whether it be it in the media, be it in politics, be it the cultural structure of America.
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so. I have a question here for you. Um, sure. I've just been kind of thinking as we've been going along here, and you know, looking um, at Hillary Clinton in particular as a female politician who's been very prominent and in the spotlight. Um, you know, just kind of thinking, she has been in politics for so long. Um, mm -hmm. We're only really stepping out of this very uh, male-dominated political scene. Um, and really starting to divest from that. And, you know, if you look at, like, a young politician like um, AOC, for example, mm -hmm. who is also very outspoken and vocal, um, but she's in existed in this time where, I don't know, she's not the only female there. She's not totally mm -hmm. in the spotlight on her own. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like, you know, a lot of people are much warmer towards her than towards mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton, for example. Mm -hmm. um, would you agree that things are shifting definitely in mm -hmm. a more positive direction in terms mm -hmm. of feminine and just the, um, you know, working together of men and mm -hmm. women versus having one dominate the other? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, certainly I would I would say certainly we've we've made progress in society. We've mm -hmm. we've made I mean, if you look at the way from the second wave feminism in nineteen sixties to now, we've made incredible progress. One of the reasons we 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 saw the emergence of third wave feminism is because there was a spike in female leadership in the nineteen nineties. I think it was dubbed as the year of the woman in nineteen ninety two, where we see you know increasing amount of women becoming uh, uh, congresswomen and and and, and senators. And with respect to AOC, absolutely, you know, seeing, I think the, the warmness towards AOC largely has to do with the change in demographic, in a sense, mm -hmm. but also in, you know, in, in the change in terms of our political orientation, because these, these days, especially our generation, are coming out of, you know, institutions with much more open-minded ideas, in a sense, about how our society should look. What are the things that are acceptable? And AOC sort of fit into that, you know, realms of ideas that were coming out of this, you know, that uh, that were coming out of uh, these different um, learning institutions. And that's something we appreciate. And I feel like AOC, it's a fresh air and we need her in a sense you know even though something might say well she carries you know a socialist you know agenda or a socialist sort of um ideology she's she had a social ideological socialist ideological leaning and and you know and that you know that is political you know that you can make your political case against her but her presence in the political scene hell yeah is it's it's needed and it is a sign of progress towards a certain way because we embrace her in a sense we see her as the future in a sense my only thing would be with that if she stays in politics long enough to forget you know tapping into tapping into that uh opportunity she had and basically creating a cause that fundamentally represent that symbol that fundamentally represent that symbol of women's progress society my only my, my only problem is that i wouldn't want her to lose sight yeah. of the of 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 that progress of she being a symbol of women's progress in society because once you get you know really deep into the american political machine it's really easier to lose sight of that and if you lose sight of that you could be president but you're still perpetrating the conditions of patriarchy 
So right now she's grounded, and I love that about her. She's mm -hmm. literally grounded in the community, and she's grounded in that feminist idea. So it is very important for her to remain in that. And again, I agree, it, it's a sign of progress. AOC, Ilan Umar, you know, and uh, a Somalian immigrant literally holding a position of power in, in, in an American uh, political society, that's huge. That literally huge, and not to talk of Kamala Harris, you know. So we are making progress, and I see AOC as um, a, a symbolic sign towards that progress, for sure. Yeah, and what Logan was saying about how there are several women congressmen, congresswomen mm -hmm. who are uh, together, kind of working together a little bit. They, they were mm -hmm. termed the squad, I believe. The squad, uh, yeah. Yeah, the squad, <laughs> yeah. which is like yeah. something that Trump, I think, had meant ironically, but then it was used uh -huh. in a way that was empowering because it is kind of right. empowering. Um, yeah. And how these congresswomen are like, um, you know, kind of now they're sharing the spotlight. So it's not just about right. one person. It's not about Absolutely. one woman, but it's about, uh, mm -hmm. and that's where the objective is to kind of normalize women mm -hmm. in politics. So it's just like, oh, okay, this is another woman in politics, not the woman in politics, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That, 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 that is absolutely my point. And, you know, and having, you know, initially we used to be thinking of, I think from the 2005 to, you know, at the end of Barack Obama's era, we used to be like, well, we have one woman in power mostly. Yeah. And that is, I'm not talking about Hillary, I'm talking about Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi has yeah. been there forever, you know. Yeah. So it'd be like, well, the symbolic nature of women in politics is Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton, you know. Now we have like so many of them we can point out. Like, oh, there's Ilan Umar. Oh, yeah, there's uh, AOC. There's Nancy Pelosi. There's Kamala Harris. There's uh, Rashid uh, Tamila, I think. I forgot her last name. Yeah. There are so many of them we can mention now. And even at the state level, uh, even at the House, we have, I think this year, the, the previous election, we have more conservative women now in, 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 uh, in, uh, in, in Congress. Now, I might not lean towards a conservative perspective, but I appreciate that we have women stepping up. I appreciate that regardless of their political orientation, that is a sign to, uh, to the idea that we're making progress in society. Now, the, 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 the the main the fundamental idea would be that not to lose sight of that progress, you know, not to be sucked up in that political machine so much so that you forget that you are, you are paving the way for women's rights. You, you are paving the way for, you know, balancing the society. Yeah. And also speaking about just to shift the conversation a little bit towards media mm -hmm. and how media mm -hmm. and uh, even in uh, Hollywood and all these kinds of things and, and, and the way in which media portrays women and the, the intersectionality mm -hmm. between um, uh, sexism and, and views on gender as well as ageism mm -hmm. and how that mm -hmm. kind of comes together for women, you know, where, you know, as they get older, there there's much more criticism about mm -hmm. women than they were when they're young or youthful, like AOC being mm -hmm. that kind of youthful energy. Right. And as they get older, it's like all of a sudden there's much more criticism, even if we were to enter politics at an older mm -hmm. age. There's much more mm -hmm. criticism because of her age, much more focus mm -hmm. on the age than there mm -hmm. is on, um, you know, mm -hmm. kind of the youthful energy of like a young woman, mm -hmm. you know, and talking about ageism mm -hmm. and the intersectionality, especially in media, how it's portrayed. Mm -hmm. uh, you yeah. know, one thing to notice about the media, it's about the media I've noticed. I mean, I, I did some, I just said a little bit of media in school. It's for two things matter. Narrative, 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 narrative. They go at great length to 
establish a Pujani narrative. And, and, and the second element is image to the narrative, okay? Now, AOC is a powerful, people, women, uh, leaders like AOC are powerful image to a certain narrative in, in this country. And she's youthful, as you say. She's she has that strong, you know, dominating energy that she that that she puts out there, which is absolutely great. Now, as she ages, of course, that that energy will you know will slowly wind down. Now, the question for the media would would be now: Would that image, literally, is that image as she grows going to fit their narrative? of American political system? That mm. is a question I feel like we should ask because media cannot go without those two elements, narrative and image. AOC is a perfect image for their narrative right now. And that's what I said in, 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 um, uh, in uh, that's what I said earlier that AOC is good and it is important for her not to get sucked up in that system so much so that she forget paving a way for other women. What I mean by that is that as, as she ages, it's important for her to have certain agenda of feminism, certain agenda of establishing her, because once she reaches a certain point, she will lose that, um, that element she has. She will lose that power she wields in society because her age will no longer fit, the, fit that image that the, the media needs to perpetrate their narrative. And, 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 and a youthfulness absolutely is something that is much more needed. That's something that, that the media is, you know, cowering to in, in a sense. So uh, image and, um, and narrative, they are two obstacles that, uh, that um, women, that ageable women uh, uh, face in terms of climbing the political ladder in, in this country. Yeah. Okay, so just a reminder, this is, this is the Truth to Power show in Radio Free Brooklyn. We're here with Aline Barry, who is the writer of uh, Decoding Feminism for Men. And we're also talking a little bit about, um, we're talking with Logan Provoznik, who's a uh, uh, co-host, acting as co-host today. Um, so also we talk a little bit about race in regards to feminism, um, mm-hmm. bringing up that because there's been a whole new... You know, in regards to intersectionality being like how identities come together, how identities, mm-hmm. uh, different identities, various identities come together and create like a cauldron of, of, of um, perception of how we're perceived. So mm-hmm. w- when we think about white feminism, we think about like how uh, white women have become kind of a force in society and mm-hmm. how um, they've kind of dominated the feminist uh, agenda. But then we have many people, people of color who are kind of, you know, pushed to the margins as well. And how mm-hmm. color or, or racism p- plays into the feminism. We can talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, white feminism has been uh, the, the, the descent of feminism for a long time. I mean, the first wave feminism, it was it was dominated by, um, you know, white women, even though we had, you know, great black feminists who are at the center of the fight. But yeah, forced wave feminism is, complete, is completely categorized by white women uh, uh, taking the lead. Um, the second wave feminism tend, you know, perpetuated that trend mm-hmm. a, a little bit when they, with the concept of sisterhood, that all women are the same, that universe, you know, trying to universalize the struggles of women and putting all women in the same basket, in a sense. Um, so second wave feminism sort of perpetuated that trend. And it was also led by, by white women, even though even though we had, because as I would like to see the second wave feminism is highly theoretical. And even though we had, you know, 
um, extremely talented black uh, activists and authors who sort of um, uh, contributed to the theoretical foundation of second wave feminism. You know, women like, um, you know, Kimberly Cruncher, who come, you know, came with the idea of in intersectionality, um, is largely dominated by, you know, was largely dominated by white women. And then we started seeing the shift um, of that trend with the, with, uh, with the coming of the, the third wave feminism in the 1990s, um, of course. And that is when I thought, uh, the third wave feminism sort of diversified feminism in a unique way, in a unique and fundamental way. And that is, I think, also borrowed from Kimberly Crenshaw's idea that uh, the notion of intersectionality, that, wait a minute, women are not only um, discriminated against based on their gender, but also discriminated against based on their race, you know, based on their nationality, based on where they come from, based on their orientation, in a sense. So, it all blends together in one, and that makes it very, very difficult for for women of color in in, in society. And so these days, we you know we we are still carrying we are still carrying on that fight about how to make sure that we you know we give spaces to women um, of color, you know, who are not only being discriminated against based on their uh, on on their sex, but also being discriminated against both based on their race. Uh, based on their gender, and to some degree, based on their nationality as well. So these are things, these are questions we have to take into account when we're talking about feminism, when we're talking about equality, that it's not enough just to say that she's a woman, you know, and that she's discriminated against because she's a woman. We have to take all of those, you know, details, elements like race, um, nationality, political orientation into account in terms of seeing how to better how to create a space that would um, uh, improve their lives and, and, and improve their way of achieving their, their potential in society. So it, it, it is a huge topic uh, here. And third wave feminism makes, makes a way for that conversation. And the reason we're having that conversation today, it's because, you know, we have the third wave feminism. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think I think I'm understanding a little bit better because I always heard these terms about the waves of feminism, but I wasn't always sure exactly what they referred mm -hmm. to. So the first wave being like the equality movement, right. second wave being kind mm -hmm. of including people of color, and the third wave mm -hmm. being about intersectionality between the all the different aspects of the individual is what you were kind yeah, of summarizing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the second wave, yeah, as, as you mentioned, the first wave is about um, equality, fighting for yeah. women's legal status and the right to vote, of course, you know, which women get in 1920. Um, but the second wave sort of continues that trend is like, hey, let's fight for women's legal status. Women needs to have educational and employment opportunities. But in the midst of it, it shifted gears. It shifted gears in a sense that it focused more on uh, women's oppression in society. So for women being discriminated, to women being oppressed in society, and it made the mistake by universalizing that oppression in the sense that all women in society, all women in the world are oppressed, you know, within their, 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 within their own private sphere, within their own private space in a sense. And hence we we have to fight against that. And that's why their, their fight was focused on that women's oppression in society. And it put all women in, in the same basket in a sense that all women share the same experience. Now, the third wave feminism sort of said, wait a minute, we had, this is not true. All women do not go the same experience. You know, an Indian woman might have a different reality from an American woman, okay? 
an Indian woman might have a different, an, uh, a Dalit woman, that is a, uh, um, a woman from a different class in India, might have a different experience from a black woman in America. And a black woman from an, in America might have a different woman from an Arab woman in the Middle East. So women cannot, all women cannot have the same, um, op, cannot experience the same oppression at the same level. They share uh, different experiences. That's why they always believe that, hey, we cannot talk about the concept of sisterhood in a sense, because we're not all the same. However, we can talk about, you know, the concept of uh, inclusion. We can talk about, you know, the, the, the concept of coming together and working together in terms of advancing uh, our cause. But we have to recognize that every one of us, you know, comes with a different experience to the cause. And that recognition experience comes, uh, came um, uh, in the wake of the third wave feminism. Mm. Yeah, I'm looking to see what uh, people are chatting yeah. about with feminism on the on the news. And one of the things that some of the things they talk about <laughs> is how uh, difficult women and how niceness and difficult women and how it's something we were talking about, like uh, mm -hmm. fighting the tyranny of niceness and why we need difficult women. I mean, we never think about that in terms of men, like men being nice or being difficult. We assume men are going to be um, kind of challenging in a way or mm -hmm. or um, kind of a assertive in a way but when those qualities come to women suddenly it becomes problematic because we have mm -hmm. these perceptions of women as being kind of right. subdued or subduable and kind of nice yeah. and being kind of pleasant uh -huh. and and all these kinds of all these attributes in ways it's so stuck in our culture that uh -huh. we think about uh mean girls as a way that mm -hmm. you know that we don't right. think about boys you know absolutely absolutely and and, and then that all boils down to the conditions of patriarchy and i feel like that's one of the yeah. conditions of patriarchy is that do how we groomed men uh boys and girls to be how we groom how we groom them to grow in in society mm. and and largely we group we, we groom girls to be nice you know soft you know sweet gentle tender you know mm. and 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 all that smiling and we we groom boys to be aggressive you know you're going to you know you're the man go out there be strong you know yeah. don't, don't cry don't show any emotions you know that 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 is a weakness in a sense that boils down to patriarchy because that's that's how we construct society in a sense we, we start from when they were from when they were young and there's a school of thought that says that for us to deconstruct patriarchy or for us to improve patriarchy, in a sense, we have to deconstruct the way we groom our kids from, you know, from when they're children, in a sense. We have to start, you know, literally telling, showing boys how to be emotional, showing boys how to take care of their biological tendency. And if one of the biological tendencies is making sure that, you know, they harbor emotions, it makes sure they express their emotions in the right way. Men express their emotions, but they also, or usually they express emotions in a violent way through anger, you know, or, you know, or aggressiveness in a sense. So it is important to deconstruct how we teach our kids um, to be, uh, grown people to be grown persons in society in a sense we have to start you know teaching boys that hey it's important 
yes, you can be aggressive, but to, but to a certain extent, you can also be emotional. You know, you can also have feelings. You can also cry, you know, and that is not a sign of weakness. In fact, that is a sign of strength. You can apologize. You know, you don't have to hide everything away and also teach our girls how to be independent from an early on, how to harbor that strength of fighting in a respectful way, that sense of the sense of being an independent agent entity in society from a very from, from a very early stage instead of just teaching them how to do domestic work or teaching teaching them how to beautify themselves you know teaching them how to be uh, a perfect woman that is that is capable of being a wife to a man mm. we have to reorient our, our teaching reorient our values in society and start empowering our girls from a very early stage at the same time the same time start empowering our boys from a very early stage by allowing them to accept their biological tendency you know their biological um innate uh, response to society uh, innate response to situations in in society yeah and also this idea that the term boys up, will be boys yeah while growing up boys. the idea of boys i was going to say that yeah about boys <laughs> or boys like this kind of excuse it's also kind of excuse in some ways uh mm. to and it's a, it has a subtle message of like sending that uh kind of in the way kind of encouraging that kind of behavior this kind of mischievous Absolutely. or kind of d difficult or or even wrong behavior and uh you know it depends on what degree and what age we're talking about you know at your very Absolutely. young age you know these kinds of behaviors are subtle and they're not so overt but in older ages of course when we're talking about adults and all that we're saying boys with mm -hmm. boys that's completely you know absolutely it's problematic yeah. very problematic yeah absolutely it's very problematic and again yeah. There are certain uh, structures, and again, the the, the apparatus of societies, the, the structures of society perpetuate that notion. It is yeah. it is in the media, you, you, the old days movies, even these days movies that come out, you know, you know, sort of continues that trend. Boys will be boys, you know, aggressive, tough, macho, and 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 nothing else beyond that. You have to be that way for you to achieve the perfect girl, you know, achieve a perfect life, be successful in life. In a sense, yeah. we. The, the media perpetrate that our culture perpetrate that society perpetrate that so it's in a sense when people talk about deconstructing patriarchy and people talk about improving patriarchy it's about targeting the infrastructure as a whole and improving it and basically allowing it okay allowing it to be accept to to accept women as an uh, independent entity in society and that means targeting culture targeting uh, 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 the, the the family space when i say targeting the family space i'm not talking about uh, abolishing the families or abolishing the family values i'm all I'm, I'm just talking about improving the family space in a way that allow the girl to grow to be an independent agent in society equally important allow the boys allow the boy to be a boy a boy devoid of any toxic masculinity mm. yeah i think that's something that's really powerful um something that comes to mind as well um you know speaking about how this is really important to ingrain in these younger men growing mm. up in society and also building on how um 
you know, just the idea you were speaking of earlier of, you know, no woman has the same experience because, you mm -hmm. know, everyone has different circumstances, location, cultural things mm -hmm. going on. Um, I think there's um, room for a lot of uh, possibility for change and growth from mm -hmm. uh, men who are, you know, middle-aged or maybe fathers. Mm -hmm. uh, recently can, um, took part in an online forum and Mm -hmm. The amount of men speaking and saying, you know, um, oh, you know, my father wasn't emotionally available mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how that really sculpted their perception of being a man at a young age. Mm -hmm. And now many of the men that were speaking were fathers themselves and they're like, mm -hmm. this is something I really want to shift and not have be present for mm -hmm. my children is mm -hmm. amazing and beautiful and to kind of see what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, already happening in some ways very slowly is a beautiful thing. Absolutely. I just really felt motivated to share that. No, thank you. Thank you so much for it. And, and I have a personal anecdote too towards that. I mean, I, the, the, the men I grew around with, they were not emotionally available as well. As, I would put it, they were emotionally stunted, if you will. Mm -hmm. And to them, it's, it brought, it's like there is a strict relationship between us and it's the relationship is between sort of a guiding and a son, you know, say nothing beyond that. And the way I was raised in a certain way is that I have to act or behave in a certain way. Or I have to behave aggressively and, and I have to act in this strong way and nothing, anything short of that, anything short of that makes me less of a man in a sense. And I grew up with that mentality and these days, and it wasn't until I started realizing, started thinking on my own, I was like, wait a minute. There's a reason why I don't have, why I did not have a strong emotional connection with the men I grew up with. There's a reason why anytime we spoke, um, all of our conversation boils down to the importance. Are you good? Um, you're doing important in society. Are you successful? Yes, sir. I'm successful. Am I doing what I'm supposed to do? Yes, sir. I'm taking care of my responsibility. Nothing beyond that. And we didn't have that conversation about how I'm dealing internally, how I am going through stuff internally, in a sense. Yes, we talk about a man, but did we talk about what, what does it mean to be a man in itself? Does it just mean being aggressive or that? We, we didn't have that sort of conversation. It, it, it was, it never transcended, mm -hmm. you know, beyond the surface, you know. There, so we have to have, it's time to have that comedy, that those conversation we're talking about, you know, this, mm -hmm. the, the the deeper conversation about what it means to be a man, and especially if it comes from the fathers, that makes it really important. If you can be emotional to your son, you know, or to, to your kids, literally, let them see emotion from you. Let them see how you express your emotion and not just always through anger. That kid, the African kids, the people that I know, the African kid, in, in, the, in the process of writing this book, I talked to so many people, and one of the people, some of the people I talked to, uh, people of Im yeah, immigrant kids, they were like, some of them told me they, they never saw their father smile. Like, literally, they never saw their father smile. Whenever they, when they say the father is home, it's that strict, rigid space, nothing else. Like, no emotion expressed. When the father is home, I got to do my responsibility. I got to do this. That When the father comes, have you done this? Have you done A, B, C? Yes, yes, sir. Yes, that I've done. Nothing goes beyond that. The father doesn't ask, how was your day, son? Oh, school was this. How do you feel about it, in a sense? We didn't go, we, we, 
we don't go through deeper to understand the person to understand that the, the, the son as an individual in a sense we mm. try to understand we try to we take the son as um as an agent of society as a product of society in a sense, instead of as a, a byproduct in himself i mean i would like to see um it's I'm not. A, I don't, I'm not a, big, a huge believer of objectivism, Ayn Rand. But there's one thing that he said that stuck with me is that we. It's high time we. It's high time we start seeing the individual as an end, um, in himself. And he has. She has a different interpretation of that. But the way I interpret is that it's high time we start seeing men or little boys and as an end in themselves, as boys who have their own interests, who have their own feeling. It's high time we start understanding them. Have in, start, uh, it's high time we start engaging them from a young old. Try to understand how they feel and how they see the world instead of just, you know, creating them to be robots, aggressive robots in society. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Okay. I just want to remind listeners of the Truth to Power Show. We're just about to end. Uh, it's Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. Uh, Radio for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to supply a free and open platform to our community and to help uh, us to have conversations like this. If you're inspired by this conversation, please consider donating to Radio Free Brooklyn or sponsoring uh, individual shows such as ours or other shows. Go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge. Um, Whatever you can afford, we definitely appreciate it. Uh, We're sponsored in part by City Running Tours. Uh, City Running Tours is uh, a great organization that helps give um, you know ten minute tours to neighborhoods all around New York City. So go to cityrunningtours.com/slash/newyorkcity uh, or go to instagram.com/slash/cityrunningtours and you can find out more about their information. Just Google it. Um, also, if you're listening to this interview by uh, computer, you can free yourself up by listening on your iPhone or Android by googling. Uh, by searching for the uh, Ready for Brooklyn in the uh, respective play stores. So please definitely look up for the apps. Uh, if you want to find out more about uh, events or upcoming events or um, and all this kind of stuff or just keep in touch with Ready for Brooklyn, go to the newsletter, uh, readyforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Just Google newsletter, Ready for Brooklyn newsletter. I'm sure you'll find it. So just finally, um, we've been here with Aleem Barry, who wrote Decoding Feminism for Men, and you can find that uh, anywhere where books are sold, I guess. You can just on Amazon, or uh, if you're averse to Amazon, I think it's available. Maybe it's on your website. Can you tell your website? Absolutely. Um, AlimBarry.com. It's everywhere. It's on Amazon. It's on um, Kindle. It's on Barnes & Noble. It's pretty much every bookstore you can, you know. Good, yeah, good. From. yeah, and also I believe you had some uh, YouTube series about that you were doing that you were giving quick lessons on uh, on uh, different topics. Any other things you're doing? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean that that is something that I've uh, I've just started recently. I mean, yeah. things have been so uh, overwhelming these days. But yeah, that is something I intend. That's going to be um uh one of my top top projects this year to yeah, yeah. be able to use youtube platform to 
pass on the message because I realize that um, it is high time men start speaking up. When I say men start speaking up, it's high time men start being uh, the forefront of the, fe of, uh, um, the, femi the feminism conversation. It's important that we have that. So I think it's important to have uh, a male perspective in the conversation. I know people these days will be like, well, some people might be like, well, we don't need men in, uh, in the conversation. We actually do need men in the conversation. It is absolutely yeah. imperative and important to have men in the conversation, to have male perspective in the conversation. So that's one of the reasons I'm trying to establish a YouTube channel to make sure that I'm passing along the message. I'm trying through the, um, the intellectual way of, you know, sort of uh, breaking things down for folks to understand through book writing. But at the same time, these days, thank you, thank you. <coughs> it is important thank to you. use the social media.